Lord, that's our cry today. Put our life on your firm foundation. And Lord, let us not be shaken by the world, by the enemy's attacks, by the day and age we're living in. But Lord, let us stand strong in your grace, in your power, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in mercy, walking in truth, walking in grace, and standing strong in our faith in you, Lord Jesus. Let that be our heart cry today. Let that be, Lord, what comes out of your word as we study it. In the mighty name, the name above all names, this, the precious and sweet name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Praise the Lord. It is great to see everyone this morning. I'm excited to be in the house of the Lord. I was, uh, yesterday I was running around with the wife and I just had an expectation this morning about this morning's service that it was going to be a great service because I believe 1 Peter chapter 4 is exactly what the body needs to hear today. They need to hear today. How do we live in difficult times? How do we live in difficult times? How do we live in the day and age we're living in? When the world's values go against what God's word says. Are you ready to suffer? Are you ready for persecution? For standing on God's word and God's word alone. You and I, friend, what we need to do in the spirit of grace, in the spirit of truth, in the spirit of compassion, we got to stand strong in the faith. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. It's been a long time since we've done this, but this morning we're going to make it through an entire chapter on one Sunday morning. But I couldn't break it up because it, it all goes together. And, and I try to grab the, the passages of Scripture that, that flow together. And this whole chapter is just an awesome passage. So 1 Peter chapter 4. You would think the preacher would already have his Bible turned there, but he didn't. So 1 Peter chapter 4, let's read three verses. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already, is, already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we study it this morning, Lord, um, speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to be armed and ready. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Armed and Ready. Armed and ready in difficult times, armed and ready in persecution, and armed and ready for suffering. When I was thinking about this message, one person that came to my mind as I was studying, a person I want to give you an illustration, somebody to think about who's endured, who endured a lot for the Christian faith, is Richard Wormbrandt. How many ever heard of Richard Wormbrandt? A couple people have. Richard Wormbrandt was a Lutheran pastor 
from Bucharest, Romania, during and after World War II. Then, at that time, Romania was a communist state, which maintained a state policy of atheism. Pastor Warmbrandt traveled the country preaching the gospel and speaking boldly against the evils of atheism and communism. After repeated warnings to stop preaching, Pastor Warmbrandt was arrested in 1947 and imprisoned for eight years. Then, uh, then after eight years in prison, he was warned not to preach and then released in 1956. But compelled by God's call on his life, he continued to work with the underground church, spreading the gospel and calling out the evil of his day. He was arrested again in 1959 and sentenced to 25 years in prison for his rebellion against the communist state of Romania. In his book, Tortured for Christ, he wrote afterwards, Richard Wormbrandt described his imprisonment. He was imprisoned under a false name so that, no, so that he could not be tracked by out, the outside world. He was beaten. He was tortured. He wrote in his, his, his book, for fun, the prison guards would lock him in an icebox to psychologically break him down. He spent three years in solitary confinement with no windows or lights, all because he refused to compromise his faith. In 1966, he came to the U.S. and he testified before the United States Senate in Washington, D.C. on the atrocities being done against the people of faith in communist countries. And then in 1967, he founded a very well-known book that many of you probably heard, magazines, it's still, still in, uh, published today, called uh, Voices of the Martyrs. And six months after I got saved, I went to church, and this was 1992, we have a special guest speaker this morning, and it was Richard Wormbrandt. And they brought him up on stage. He was so fragile and so frail, he had to sit in a chair and preach. And I got to meet this great saint of God. Now, he went through a lot. He went through a lot that many of us may not ever experience in this life. But let the testimony of Scripture, the Word of God, and let the great saints that have gone before us, like Richard Warren inspire us and encourage us to stand tall for the faith. And I believe that that's exactly where the Apostle Peter is, what the Apostle Peter is talking about as we study 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. So let's take a look at what the Word of God says concerning standing strong in difficult times. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, when Christ was on earth, we all know he suffered, and he suffered greatly. But here's the deal. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, allowed nothing to stand in the way of his mission. Now, he was God. He was the eternal Son of God, doing the Father's will, came to seek and save the lost, came to die on the cross, but he let nothing stand in the way. And here, you and I are told in verse 1, look at it, we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose, meaning the same thought, the same attitude, the same principle. There's, there's no quitting in, in, in the Christian life. There's no dipping out on the Lord. There's no easy believism. Man, he wants people that are completely committed to him and to furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we arm ourselves with this same purpose, you know, the only thing we can say is, man, I'm serving Christ 
no matter what. No matter what comes in this life, come hell or high water, come blessed times and peaceful times, and we praise the Lord for those, or come times of persecution, suffering, and difficulty. Jesus, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live for you. That's the heart that Peter is developing in this passage, even if it means we have to suffer for the cause of Christ. So how do we arm ourselves? Look at verse 2. As a matter of fact, let's look at verses 2 and 3 in 1 Peter 4. He says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable things. The first principle we see in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, answering the question, how do I arm myself? How do I prepare myself to live a completely sold out life to Christ? Principle number one is you have to have a, now we'll add this phrase, a deep commitment to leave the past behind. To leave the past behind. He says there, no longer, no longer do we live in the lust of the flesh. No longer do we live in the lust of men. We, we leave the old life behind, and we embrace our new life in Christ, our faith. This is God's will, according to verse 2. We depart from sin. We run from sin. We run from darkness. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord to depart from iniquity. In other words, we leave the old life behind. This, the course of, and it's really... Uh, Verse 3 is really sexual. It's the course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking and parties. We leave behind that old life. We leave it behind. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. See, the Christian life, my friend, is about looking forward. It's about looking forward at the future and serving Christ today and in the future. And whatever was done in the past, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever it was, we, 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 we let it go, we leave it behind, but we especially leave darkness behind and leave the old sin behind. That's called repentance. Repentance is when you say, God, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Please set me free. Please help me. Please disciple me. And I leave the old life behind and I follow you, Lord Jesus. You know, the world, the world pursues, verse 3, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's what the world pursues, but not the Christian. We pursue more courage, more faith, and more of Christ. Leave the past behind. Let's look at the next one, verse 4. Verses 4 and 5. There's, there's another beautiful truth here. He says in verse 4, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of, dis of dis dissipation and they malign you for they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead at times the world will mock Christians they will mock Christians 
for their commitment to Christ. They will mock Christians for their sexual purity. They will mock Christians for their commitment to the word of God. That word in verse 4 where it says malign you, that word malign means to slander, to blaspheme, to mock. They will laugh. They will mock. You silly Christians, you always just wanting to serve Jesus and live for him and do, and you always want to go to church, and you always want to study the Bible, and you, always, you don't want to go out and do the things that we do, they will mock us at times. But what you and I have to do in those moments is my second principle this morning in arming yourself is we have to have a deep commitment to be pleasing to the Lord, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's our heart's desire is to please God. We, we, we care about God's approval. Our, our passion, our desire is to have God's approval on our life and not the world's approval. The world's approval to the believer means rubbish. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So what's Paul saying there? Paul, man, that's a strong statement. If you study it and you break down this verse... Basically, what Paul is saying here is you cannot please God and the world. You will please one or the other, but not both. And our desire as Christians is to please our creator, to please our creator. That's the response to the gospel. When you hear the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the grave, you're like, man, he gave everything for me. I'm going to give everything for him, and I'm going to live my life to please him. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now Peter here is talking about one or two groups of people. He's either talking about the believers in that day who had passed away and gone home to be with the Lord and they... Or some commentators, some scholars believe this is a reference to the Old Testament saints. But either way, let's just go with the Old Testament saints. The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to the Old Testament saints through the prophecies of Scripture. And they trusted in the promise of God. They trusted in the promises of God and they looked forward We trust in the promises of God, and we look back to Christ. But the bottom line in the context of the passage is even the Old Testament saints, the prophets, the apostles, we know that 11 of the 12 disciples died a martyr. All of them died a martyr except John. Church history tells us John died of old age. But they all were persecuted. They all were rejected, and they were all judged by men. They were all judged by men. But where are they at today? Where are they at today? That's where I believe he's going. He says at the very end of verse 6, that they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. All these saints that have gone before us, that that have suffered greatly, that have been persecuted, Richard Wormbrandt is no longer in a wheelchair. He's in the glory of heaven. He is in the glory of heaven. And And I believe that there's an extra special blessing for believers that suffer for Christ in this world. I believe there's an extra measure of blessing when they get to heaven. 
So basically, the world can't hurt us. If you have a blessed life and you don't experience persecution, praise the Lord, you're going to heaven. But if you do experience persecution, you do experience difficulties in life, praise the Lord, one day you'll be in heaven and there will be an extra measure of blessing for you for standing strong for Christ. Family, that is our hope. And that, that, that is what we're here for, man. To, 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 to be a disciple of Christ and to learn these truths. And this morning, I hopefully my, my vision, my aim in preaching and teaching is to arm you and equip you to go out and live boldly and strong for the Lord Jesus Christ in your faith, in your walk, in your family, in your place of work, in, in your life. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We know that the early church, man, they expected the return of Christ at any moment. They thought he could come at any moment. It says the end of all things is near. Well, what, what's up, pastor? We're here. It's 2,000 years later. Christ hasn't returned. The scripture teaches that a thousand years in our sight is as one day to God. And in the realm of eternity and time, it was just like two days ago. God, God, God dwells outside the realm of time and, and space, okay? So he is still going to come at any moment. And, and Peter is telling us here in verse 7, he says, look, look at it. Look at it in verse 7. He says, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The third principle I present to you this morning, living in the day and age we're living in, is you need to arm yourself with what the text says. Sound judgment and a sober spirit what for? What does the verse say? For the purpose of prayer. Now, what is the sound? What is sound judgment? What does a sober spirit look like? It means to. It means for you and I to think clearly, to think biblically, to think righteously about all things. See, you and I have these glasses on, and these glasses are having a biblical world view. We look at people through the lens of Scripture. We look at all people as people Jesus died for. We look at all people as people that if they will repent and put their trust in Christ, they will be saved. We look at all people in a spirit of compassion, in a spirit of love to help people. And when we think biblically, we think clearly, we think righteously, it makes us effective in our prayers. He says, to be sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. When you have sound judgment and you have a sober spirit, here are some of the things that you will pray for. You will not be praying for a Lamborghini. You will not be praying for a house on Lake Murray, okay? You will be praying that sound judgment, that sober spirit purpose of prayer, you will be praying for persecuted Christians, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are, who are enduring intense suffering for the cause of Christ. You will pray for the lost. You will pray fervently that people will come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You will pray fervently that God will give you witness encounters to share the gospel. Those are the kind of things that sound judgment and a sober spirit give us for the purpose of prayer. You will pray for our country. You will pray for a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit that sweeps across America. 
And it turns our president and our government and our governors and our Congress and everyone that's in power, our, our local leaders, it will turn everyone back to the Lord. We pray for a revival and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Those are the kind of things that a Christian prays for in these last days. And we don't forget ourselves. We don't forget ourselves. We're told in Scripture to pray for our daily provision. We pray for God's provision in our daily life, okay? We, we, we ask the Lord to take care of us, to provide for us financially, to provide for us a home, a place to live, and to take care of us. But those are the type of things that we pray for when we have a sound judgment and a sober spirit. Family, let's be of sound judgment and a sober spirit so that we can pray in a line with the heart of God. Those are the things that we have to have. Continuing on in verse 8. Oh, this is a beautiful verse. This is a magnificent verse. This is the heart of the Christian faith, the second greatest commandment, if, you'll, if you think about it. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor. Man, love your neighbor. It's the love of God that's been poured into our hearts that binds us together in this room. It's the love of God that binds us together with all Christians, with all believers, all people of all backgrounds that are believers in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, For God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit, and we are to share that love, okay? In other words, the love just doesn't stay inside your heart, and God's love is filling my heart, and I'm just treating people any old way I want to. No, that's not the way it works. That love, God's love, that divine agape love, it comes out of us. You say, Pastor, how does it come out of us? I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is what? The love chapter. This, this chapter, this verses 4 through 7 define what this love looks like in our life. So what does this fervent love for one another look like? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, he says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Is our love patient? Is our love kind? This is the God love that's in our hearts that we share with one another, that how we deal with each other. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy this love, when it says it does not envy, it doesn't look at what other people have and, and lust after it. It says, God bless you. Praise the Lord for the blessings on your life. Go enjoy those. This love does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. You know, it's verse 8 of um, 1 Peter 4 says, keep fervent in your love for one another, for, for others. And then Paul, and Paul says here, um, it does not, it's not self-seeking. In other words, it's not inward-focused, but it's outward-focused. It's not easily angered. You know, God's love is a, is a graceful love. His love in our hearts says, you know, when somebody blows it, we don't drop the gavel on them, but we drop grace on them, and we point them to Christ. Uh, it keeps no record of wrong. True agape, biblical love, towards one another 
I'm not going to hang your mistakes over your head. I'm not, every time I look at you, think about what you've done wrong. And I hope you'll do the same for me. Because Pastor David messes up along the way sometimes. But that's what it does. It holds no record of wrong. You know, it sees people as the Lord sees them. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Again, love is biblical. It loves God. It loves godliness. It hates sin. It hates unrighteousness. It hates evil, but it rejoices in the truth, according to verse 6. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. It rejoices in the truth of the gospel. Verse 7 says, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. This is the kind of love I want to experience in the church. Okay? This is God's definition of love. This is God's definition of love that you and I can show to one another. This is the kind of love that draws people into the kingdom. This is the kind of love that heals people's hearts. This is the kind of love that that when you exercise this kind of love, people are going to love you. People are going to want to be around you because you're an encouragement to them. You're the one that helps them, and you're the one that loves them when they're going through difficulties. So the fourth principle of this 1 Peter chapter 4, according to verse 8, is we arm ourselves with love. We arm ourselves with love for God and for each other. He says, because it covers a multitude of sins. You know, it's in an environment of biblical Christian love that people feel open to sharing their sins and confessing their sins and repenting of their sins and uh, being held accountable by other brothers and sisters who, um, who love them and don't judge them. Verse 9, verse 9, he says, be, hot, be hospitable to one another without complaint. The word hospitable in the Greek, it literally means to love strangers. So what's my fifth principle this morning, living in these days we're living in? We need to arm ourselves with hospitality. You see, our love, our Christian love in our hearts, it goes beyond the circle of Christianity. It goes to all people. We care about people we've never met, okay? When I meet an individual, no matter who they are or where they're from, there's somebody that Jesus loves, and I treat them as such. And if I can help them in the moment, I will help them. If we can help them in the moment, we will help them. But that's what hospitality means. It means helping complete strangers. You know, and this goes countercultural because in our world, you know, everybody wants their circle. Everybody wants their sphere of influence. But we as Christians, man, we open our hearts not to just our brothers and sisters in Christ or to our family, but we open our hearts to complete strangers. This hospitality, it could be... Um, making a meal for someone. It could be helping someone in need. It could be a random act of kindness. But the fifth principle in the day and age we're living in, our hearts need to be open to showing hospitality to all people. Let's continue. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it, serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
The first thing here is we're going we're to talk about spiritual gifts for a minute. But I want you to understand that all spiritual gifts that come from God, they do not come for your purpose. They come, the Holy Spirit gives you a gift so that you can minister to others. A, a special gift as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The gifts of the Spirit are meant to bring the grace of God to the church. So the sixth principle, if you're taking notes this morning of this passage, 1 Peter 4, is we need to arm ourselves. Arm ourselves with serving with the gift that the Holy Spirit has given us. Did you know each and every one of you guys have a special gift? That's what the scripture teaches. Each and every person here has a special gift to build the kingdom. Now, what do you think Christianity, what do you think our church would be like if every single person was operating in their gift? Man, it would be explosive. It would be awesome. We would be a church on fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So every believer has a gift. Every believer has a gift. I want to read to you. Uh, I do not believe this is all the gifts. I believe there are many more. We know back in, in Exodus, God gave men special gifts to uh, build the tabernacle. So there, there's many places in the Scripture where God gifts, gives someone a special gift to build the kingdom, Old Testament and New Testament. But in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told there's the gifts of the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, the gift of discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues, helps, and administration. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there's like two entire chapters there dedicated to the subject of those gifts. Then in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, it says God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Romans chapter 12 verses 6 and 8 says prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving generously, leading, and showing mercy. I ask you this morning, what is your gift? What is your gift? The scripture says to each one of us is given a gift to minister in the body of Christ. What gift has the Holy Spirit given to you to minister to the body of Christ? Hopefully, many of you know it. And you can say, yeah, God has given me the gift of encouragement or giving or showing mercy or serving or teaching or evangelist or pastor, teacher, uh, these different gifts. But, and hopefully you know your gift, but maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, I'm not sure. I don't know what my gift is. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still, I'm, try, I'm still trying to figure out what gift has God given me to minister into the body of Christ? How do I discover? How do I discover my gift that the Holy Spirit has given me to minister to others. I want to give you three principles I believe that will point you in the right direction of discovering what your gift is. Number one, you got to fill your heart and mind with the Word of God. You got to spend time in the Scriptures. You got to meditate on the Word day and night and let the Word of God fill your heart. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. It's His Word. And what you're doing as you meditate on Scripture is you're allowing the Word of God 
to get into your heart. And, and the, the Bible says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to speak into our life. You ever have one of those moments? I have, where I was facing a dire situation, a difficult situation, and I just kept reading the Word of God and kept studying the Word of God and meditating on the Word of God, and then all of a sudden, I was facing a difficulty, and the Holy Spirit reminded me of a verse, of a passage in Scripture that dealt directly with the situation I was experiencing. That's how the Holy Spirit works. So we got to fill our heart and minds with the Word of God. Number two, pray. Pray and ask the Lord. Father in heaven, help me to discover my gift. Help me, Lord. Please show me. Please speak to my heart. Please reveal to me the gift that you have given me. It's that simple. You know, this isn't rocket science. You ask the Lord to show you what gift you have. Third one, a third way. I, I wouldn't say a third way, excuse me. I would do all three of these. I would fill my heart and mind with the word of God. I would pray and ask the Lord to show me. And thirdly, I would go to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, what do you, what do you, what do you see me doing? A trusted brother and sister in Christ who's watched you in your life. A lot of times, our brothers and sisters in Christ will see our gift in operation in us before we see it ourselves. So those are three principles I present to you this morning. Fill your heart and mind with the Word of God. Pray and ask the Lord, and then ask another believer. Hey, Ben, what do you see me doing, bro? You know, what, what do you see in my life? What, what gifts am I operating in? You know, you, you ask another brother or sister of Christ, and a lot of times... They'll pinpoint it. And then, and then the Holy Spirit will confirm that, yes, that is the gift. That is, that is what I've called you to do. So we need to operate in our special gift. Talking about verse 10. Let's look, continue, verse 11. But, oh, man, this is really good. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion and forever and ever. Amen. Family, this is our aim. This is our aim in preaching, in teaching, encouraging, and serving, that our words and our actions will glorify God. They will bring honor and glory to his name, that our words and our actions, whether we're preaching, teaching, serving, that they will come from the Holy Spirit, okay? When we teach, when we disciple, when we serve others, we don't want it to be us, but we want it to be the Holy Spirit inside of us, moving us, and directing us. We want our words and our actions to point people to Christ because that's the, that's the ultimate aim of all the gifts. The ultimate aim of all the gifts is not so people can look at you and, wow, look at the prophet. That's not the point. The point is so when the words you say and the words you speak, that they will point people 
to Christ. That is one way you know that you're operating in the gifts, is when you know that the end goal of your gift is to point people to the Savior. And again, there's a very powerful phrase in verse 11. He says, halfway through verse 11, so that in all things, all ministry, everything that's done for the Lord, um, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not the name of Calvary Chapel, not the name of David Ford, or not the name of any organization, but the name of Christ. The name of Christ. This is our aim. We have to be very careful with our words. You know, as, as, a, as, as people doing ministry and helping others, many people will cling to your words. They will hurt, hold to your words as prophetic words, as words that you've spoken into their life. So we have to be very, very careful. Whoever speaks is doing speaking the utterance of God. You know, we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit in ministry. We need to be in tune with the Lord as, as, as we even preach, teach, speak, and serve, according to verse 11. Okay, verses 12, 12 through 19. This, this portion of Scripture, some of your Bibles divided up in this section. But this, verses 12 through 19, has one theme. And that one theme is this. Be ready for trials and tribulations. Okay? So here's the deal. When you do what the scripture talks about in verses 1 through 11, that, that's, that's called um, being, being, re being ready. Now it's going gonna, it's gonna to talk about, oh, excuse me, be armed. But when you arm yourself, this is what you got to be ready for. You know, when you serve the Lord and you get on fire for the Lord and you operate in your gifts, here's what you can expect. Let's look at it, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Remember this, family. When you serve Christ, when you engage in ministry, it will not always be easy peasy. As a matter of fact, being in ministry is, is, is a very difficult thing. I, I remember when I retired from the army. I thought all the army stuff was tough and this was going to be easy. No. Ministry is difficult. Ministry is challenging. Ministry is rewarding. We love ministry because we're building into people's lives. But when you get into people's lives, things can become challenging because they're being discipled and when we are discipled we are laying aside the old habits and we're putting on the new man in Christ and it can be difficult it can be trying it can be challenging with people but we but we need to be ready for trials and tribulations when you serve the Lord when you engage in ministry you will be opposed by Satan the world will mock your passions okay the world does not mind people getting confirmed. The world does not mind people getting baptized or joining a church membership. But you start sharing the gospel and impacting people for Christ, you will experience opposition. So when the going gets tough, what happens? The tough get going. Okay? Put on your helmet, buckle on your chin strap, and let's do this thing. 
Let's serve the Lord and let's help other people follow Christ. And when you experience opposition, when you experience trials, when you experience difficulties, look at verse 14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, what does it say? You are blessed. You are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. When the going gets tough and the persecution and the the mocking and the opposition and the spiritual warfare takes place, don't lose heart in ministry. Remember, what does it say in verse 14? You are blessed. You have the favor of God on your life through Christ Jesus. You are greatly favored in his sight. You are blessed. And then it says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, man. In those difficult times, we reach down, we, we look inside, and we say, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me, help me get through this. Help me get through this. He continues in verses 15 and 16. He says, make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Again, Christians, we need to be the very best law-abiding citizens there are. And we don't break the laws. We are law-abiding citizens. We abide by the laws of the land, except when the laws of the land go against Scripture. And that's called civil disobedience. But other than that, we need to be the very best at not murdering people or stealing or being evildoers or troublesome meddlers. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Again, this is our prayer in difficult times. Our prayer in difficult times is this, Lord, let me honor you and glorify you in this difficult situation. Let me honor you and glorify you in this tough time that, we, that, that we're going through, through the trials, through the tribulation, when the, when the world rejects us, when the world mocks us. You know, we don't return hate or anger but, but we, we, we pray for them, we love them, and we pray and we ask the Lord, Lord, help us to honor you and glorify you in this situation. You know, when people hate, we love. When people tear down, we, we build them up. That's how we roll at Calvary Chapel. Verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God. When I read this verse, the first thing that came to my mind was Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And what happened? Boom! God dropped them down. Judgment fell on them. But we need to understand this. When it talks about about, uh, judgment to begin with the house of God, God's judgment on the church is not, I repeat, is not a a condemning judgment. Our sin was judged at the cross. The judgment that God places upon the church is a disciplinary, is a disciplinary judgment. Just as a parent corrects a child, it's it's a disciplinary judgment. It's 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 a perfecting judgment. You know, God disciplines those he loves. He, he disciplines those he loves, and it's, it's, it's a perfecting judgment. And again, it's the same judgment a loving parent would show on their child when they do wrong. For the body of Christ, God's judgment and his love for the body 
go hand in hand. God's love is not a sloppy wet kiss. It is a perfecting love that says he wants the very best for his people. And if judgment is what it takes to bring about obedience, he will do it. He will do it because he loves us. And he won't let us stay in our sin, but he'll bring judgment with the hopes of bringing repentance, with the hopes of bringing you to your knees and back to the cross and to a full commitment to him. We will, we will reap what we sow. And if we sow to the flesh, what does the scripture say? We'll reap destruction. Verse 18 and 19 to finish up this chapter. He says, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? See, the world is blinded by their sin. They are headed for eternal destruction. They are headed for eternal damnation. Why? Because of their sin. They're headed for an eternity in the lake of fire and hell and judgment. But through the gospel, God has done something so that they don't have to spend eternity separated from God in hell. He died on the cross. And if they will repent and put their trust in Christ and, and, and serve him and love him and live for him and receive him, they will get to go to heaven. Unfortunately, the world doesn't see that. Why? Because their, their spiritual eyes are blind. And we need to preach the gospel in a spirit of love and a spirit of grace and a spirit of truth. Preach the whole truth, the bad news, the good news, the judgment, the grace, repentance, and faith. We need, to, we need to preach it all with the helps that the godless man and the sinner will understand the glorious good news of the gospel. And he says in verse 19, a very fitting verse for the Christian who's suffering. You know, I, I, I wonder if Richard Warmbrandt thought about this verse when he was in solitary confinement for three years. Or the Christians in the Middle East who were losing their head for the gospel, or for all Christians who are being persecuted around the world. Look at verse 19. He says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our trying times, persecution, suffering, whatever we may face, we need to understand this, and that is... The, God is faithful. Okay? And you may not be able to, they may, you may not, they may not be able to see that with their eyes, but we got to stand firm on that truth. That, that come hell or high water, come, no matter what happens in this life, God is faithful. When we see situations taking place and life has thrown us a curveball, and things aren't the way we thought they should be, we need to remember God is faithful. So if you're facing a trial, if you're facing a difficulty, if, if you're being persecuted or you're suffering or things aren't going the way it's supposed to, you need to remember what verse 19 says. God is faithful. God shall, therefore, those who suffer, that were suffered difficult times, trials, tribulations, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful 
creator in doing what is right. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. Thank you, Lord, for these awesome truths, Lord God, found in this chapter, Father. Help us, Lord, to arm ourselves with a deep commitment to leave the past behind, to be completely pleasing to you in all things. Father, help us to be sound in judgment, sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Help us to love one another. Help us to show hospitality, Lord. Help us to exercise our gift and help us to understand that life is not always easy and that life can, is, can be challenging, especially when we serve you in an ungodly world. But Lord, we're reminded in your text, in your word this morning, that you are faithful. So Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you for your word this morning. Father, encourage your people. Encourage your people by your spirit, by your word. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.